Welcome to Rising. We have a great show for you today. Amber, it's great to be with you at the desk again. Why don't you kick us off today? Absolutely. Thank you so much, Jason. It's good to be back. Two major abortion bans were rejected by the respective courts yesterday, the first in South Carolina. The state Senate rejected a near-total abortion ban after the chamber's five female lawmakers led a multi-day filibuster against the bill. The legislation sought to ban abortion from conception with exceptions for rape, incest, fatal fetal anomalies, and to save the life of the mother. Here's South Carolina Republican Senator Sandy Sen criticizing Majority Leader Shane Massey on the matter. Let's watch. Abortion laws have always been, each and every one of them, about control. It's always about control, plain and simple. And in the Senate, the males all have con control. We the women have not asked for, as the Senator from Orangeburg pointed out yesterday, nor do we want your protection. We don't need it. We don't need it. There is not a single thing that I can do when women such as me are insulted except to make sure that you get an earful. And you need to blame this earful on following that leader blindly off the cliff for the third time on abortion. And I'm sure you're getting an earful, if you're being honest, from your wives, from your children, from your grandchildren. You cannot tell me that you are not. I know you are. And in Nebraska, a six-week abortion ban failed in the legislature after supporters of the ban fell one vote short of breaking a filibuster to enact the new law. The bill, which sought to ban abortion after cardiac activity is detected around six weeks of pregnancy, lost a crucial supporter when Republican State Senator Merv Reby abstained from the vote. All right, Jason, those Republican women had some sharp <laughs> words for their colleagues there in uh, South Carolina. What did you think of that? Yeah, no, it, it's not surprising. It seems like support for abortion rights is, is big with women, particularly uh, suburban women, women across the political spectrum. I think, honestly, if Republicans wanted to have success with this, they should at the very least start with a 15-week ban. Uh, I think that that is where the mainstream of American society is. Um, that's where young people are, and uh, that's what put us in line with the rest of the industrialized world. So I think if they really wanted to be successful, that's where they should go. I think the six-week bans, I think people see that as just a path towards a total ban on abortion. They, people see that as a way uh, that it could put women's lives and health in, in, in jeopardy. Uh, and when abortion is up for a referendum, like we saw, I believe it was in Kansas, it fails, you know, uh, when you try to ban abortion. And, and uh, we're seeing a lot of politicians who seem to be pretty staunchly pro-life are starting to soften their stances. We talked about it last week with Donald Trump. Uh, he's softening his stance. At one point in 2015, he was saying women who seek an abortion should be punished. Now he's saying, oh, you know, it should go back to the states, uh, let them decide. And they have also, we also saw what happened in Wisconsin, you know, where that Supreme Court uh, election was largely decided on the issue of abortion, and you saw the liberal judge win. So I think it would, from a political standpoint, it would behoove Republicans to soften their stance a little bit and to stop trying uh, either to rule by judicial fiat or to uh, have these really strict abortion bans. I think that there's a question of principalism versus pragmatism, right? Mm -hmm. Where you have people who 
are very pro-life and would love to see a national ban on abortion. I consider myself in that camp, to be mm -hmm. totally honest with yeah. you. I'm, I'm pro-life, unapologetically. Um, but I also recognize that from a political standpoint, what you say is true. The national appetite right now is for a 15-week ban. And so I think we have to be careful to not make the perfect the enemy of the good. Mm -hmm. A 15-week ban would save a lot of lives. And if that's what we have the votes to do, then I think that's what Republicans should do. And maybe that changes the culture a little bit and people start to see, um, in my opinion, the evils of abortion. And maybe that makes people more likely to support a six-week ban down the line. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I totally hear what you're saying with um, the way that the politics are aligned on this issue right now. Pro-life support is not where it needs to be for the bills that are going on in these state legislatures. Yeah, it's, it's just not going to work for them. And honestly, um, I think the argument against what you're saying uh, is that you know, very much on, on that principle issue, I think people who support abortion rights will say that 15 weeks is an arbitrary date, you know, like it, it's not scientific. You know, there's nothing scientific that's happening at 15 weeks where you make that decision. And right now, in most cases, it's around 20 weeks is when we decide that that's the, you know, the point of viability, where you can live outside of the womb. And that should be the point when we ban abortion, when, you know, a human being can live without its mother. Uh, and that's when we should consider it separate from its mother. Um, you know, I, I think still... As we said, from a political standpoint, most people know you know you are pregnant at 15 weeks. You may not know you're pregnant after six weeks. Like, that's it's completely reasonable that someone may not be aware uh, at six weeks of pregnancy that they are carrying a child or carrying an embryo at that point. Um, so it, it's, in many people's eyes, including a lot of women, some of whom have carried children, whether it's carrying it to term, or not, uh, have not known that they were pregnant after six weeks. So they see that as unreasonable. But I think 15 weeks, you, you pretty much know whether you are pregnant. And I think a lot of people see that as a reasonable compromise between the pro-life camp and people who support abortion rights. I want to get back to your point about 15 weeks being arbitrary, because I actually think it's an argument for my side, but okay. we'll get to that in yeah. a minute. On the other hand, earlier this week, North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum signed a law banning the procedure throughout pregnancy with slim exceptions up to six weeks gestation, one of the strictest in the country. In those early weeks, abortions would only be allowed in cases of rape or incest or in medical emergencies. After six weeks, rape and incest victims cannot get abortions to treat some medical emergencies, such as ectopic pregnancies, are allowed at any stage of pregnancy. All right, so real quick on this 15-week thing, sure. I agree that it is arbitrary, and that's actually, I think, an argument in my favor because um, the question of viability has changed over time based on scientific advances. Mm -hmm. So right now it might be 20 weeks, but it used to be 24, maybe even 30. So that's not a question of when the fetus is human, right? Viability is not a question of humanness. Viability is a question of how good our medical system is at keeping babies alive outside of the womb. So I think you're going to see over time as we progress with more medical advance, advancements, by your standard, we would have to move an abortion ban uh, earlier into pregnancy because babies are going to be viable earlier and earlier um, throughout a woman's And I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with revisiting 
the issue if, if something, if there's some sort of change in medical science where you can revisit and say, hey, viability has changed. Maybe we should revisit this. We've been revisiting uh, abortion and abortion rights for a very long time. There's no reason why we can't uh, acknowledge when viability has changed. The idea that we would just come up with an arbitrary date and say, hey, this is what Europe is doing, um, number one, it doesn't make it seem like we are leaders in this discussion. It seems like we're following the rest of the world. And there's, I think we should have a scientific basis for when we make these kinds of decisions. But um, I, again, one of the things that I think is important in any discussion about abortion is that we have to acknowledge that both sides are coming in for a good faith discussion. I acknowledge when I talk to my pro-life friends that they actually want, they actually believe that um, human life starts at conception and that they are protecting a human life. And I think one of the things that is done is oftentimes we demonize one another without actually listening to the other side and, and trying to understand that they're coming from a place of good faith. And so I think that's the first part of this discussion. I know, I believe 100% that you actually believe that you are protecting life and you're not trying to control someone's body. Correct. So I think one of the problems is that both sides, you know, one side says you're a murderer, you support murder, and the other side says you're trying to control women, you're trying to make this the handmaid's tale, instead of actually having a conversation about where we are and why our, dis our argument is better for human beings and better for not only uh, the unborn, but also for women and their bodily autonomy. Sure, and I think it's important to say, you know, as a pro-life woman that I have so much compassion for women who are faced with this really difficult decision. Um, based on pretty much every study I've seen, there's so much abortion regret that doesn't get talked about. And so I'm big on making sure that we're providing resources for women who are pregnant, who are facing uh, the decision as to whether or not to terminate the pregnancy and make sure that we're giving them as much financial, emotional support as possible to show them that there's a better way. Uh, but I think this is a really great discussion, Jason, and I appreciate you coming at it with good faith, as did I. We'll be back with more Rising right after this. Former Vice President Mike Pence testified before a federal grand jury yesterday in federal prosecutors' investigation into former President Trump's efforts to overturn the 2022 election. This, according to the AP, Pence was subpoenaed earlier this year to testify, but that was temporarily blocked by a bid by lawyers for Donald Trump. A judge eventually ruled that executive privilege concerns were not enough to stop Pence's appearance before the grand jury. So could Pence be the guy that somehow finally takes down Trump? <laughs> uh, I don't think so. I think one right. of the things we know that Pence is trying to do, he's trying to walk a tightrope here. Yeah. Um, he doesn't want to be the person that goes on record and brings down Donald Trump. Um, but at the same time, I think he wants to bring down Donald Trump. So it's, <laughs> it's a tough situation. He, I mean, he has higher aspirations. He obviously wants to be president. He's polling at about 4%. Um, and he, he's trying to do the whole Ronald Reagan kind of act every time he goes up. 
He wrote about it in his book, and I think that's what he's going to try and stick to in front of a grand jury. He's going to say, hey, read my book. This is what I said. Uh, he's not going to be tr try to be too forthcoming. But I also think, you know, Jack Smith must have something up his sleeve. He must know something. I don't, you know, maybe there was somebody in the hallway, maybe there was somebody who was cleaning the windows, but he must know something in order to, to already pull uh, Mike Pence out there and then kind of get him trapped right there. Um, because Mike Pence is going to be, is going to try and avoid being too forthcoming. Mm -hmm. uh, you, we saw he didn't want to talk about, Jan to the January 6th committee, uh, which was smart politically. Now, of course, he has the cover of, you know, I'm following the law. I'm compelled to give this testimony. Um, they didn't go for the executive privilege argument. Um, so he has that as political cover. But if he's too forthcoming, I think it will hurt him amongst the Republican base. Now, people on the left, of course, are hoping that he's going to be very forthcoming and realize that he's not going to win the GOP nomination, right. <laughs> not while Donald Trump is there and probably not while a host of other uh, Republican options are there. So we'll see what happens. But something tells me Jack Smith must know something. And he's trying to, like, corner Mike Pence into uh, being even more forthcoming than he, than he wants to. Yeah, that's kind of what these prosecutors do, right, is they try to trap people or maybe even get them uh, to say something that's not quite right, and then they'll pressure them, well, we're going to get you for perjury. They're mm -hmm. pretty tricky with the way that they operate in these, um, in these conversations. But I think that you're dead on when you say Mike Pence has talked about this openly. Like, his mm -hmm. role in this is not a secret. He has, I think, been pretty forthcoming and honest about what former President Trump asked him to do, and he declined, and he took a lot of heat for it. So the idea that he has something else up his sleeve that could take down Trump, I'm just not sure that that's accurate. But I will say I feel bad for him because he was the type of guy who allowed Trump to have the spotlight. He was very loyal to him throughout Trump's presidency. And then on this last moment, <laughs> yeah. right, where he felt like he was doing the right thing, he got kind of thrown under the bus. Yeah. And that's, unfortunately, that happens to a lot of people who are very loyal to Trump. It's like mm -hmm. you make one wrong move and all of a sudden you're dead in the water and rhino. he sticks all your people on <laughs> all of yeah. his people on you. And that's a, that's a hard place to be in. I am grateful that I don't have to navigate anything yeah. like that because I've never obviously worked for Trump. But yeah, I, I think Mike Pence is a good person. And um, I just, he's in a really tough spot with all of this. Well, I think what, what Jack Smith is trying to figure out is, were there any statements about intent? Mm. Like basically what he's trying to figure out is, did Trump behind closed doors say, I know we lost? Right. You know, uh, but we're going to try and do this to maintain power. That's basically a coup right there. So he wants to see if, if uh, we can get anything out of Pence to show that kind of intent rather than, I know we won, we won, we won. And just, you know, he's just wrong. Yeah. You know, um, being wrong is not a crime. But certainly, if you were trying to upend democracy, that is a crime. And so I think that's what Jack Smith is looking for. Uh, Mike Pence to be kind of the linchpin in, in that conversation. I don't think Mike Pence, even if he knew that, is going to be that forthcoming. And Mike Pence 
is struggling even with his base, which is like kind of the evangelical, even the pro-life people. Mm -hmm. uh, you would think that they would be with Mike Pence because his pro-life stance is more like yours. It's, you know, life begins at conception, you know, that sort of thing. We've seen Trump kind of waffle on that and change his stance. Um, but a lot of those evangelicals are still sticking with Trump. And Mike Pence, I don't. I think he's a, a politician without a home right now. Yeah. And it, and it's and it is a shame because he stood up for our on that one day. Uh, he stood up for our institutions. He stood up for our democracy and our elections. But he got close to you know Donald Trump, and Donald Trump demands you know fealty, obsequiousness, um, and. That one day he, he ran afoul of Donald Trump and it's, it's hurt the rest of his political career. Yeah, and I think um, if the case is that they're trying to prove that behind closed doors Trump was not believing of the fact that he won the election or that it was all fraudulent and he was saying, uh, actually, we didn't win, but we have to keep pushing because we've already told people all of this, mm -hmm. then I think Pence could conceivably claim some kind of executive privilege. I'm sure his lawyers are probably working on that um, because we've seen in these types of legal situations before that the people who were in the White House with Trump will say, you know, I can't share my conversations with the president that were private and they can only share things that were done publicly or in front of other people. That's kind of a common thing. Um, so again, I, it, it'll be interesting to see how much he's actually able to get out of Pence. But to your point about him not having home, it's so true. And yeah. the evangelical base, um, I think, is very appreciative of Trump for what he did with the Supreme Court, which ultimately led to the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Um, that was the, obviously the biggest victory for the pro-life movement in decades. Um, so it would be hard to splinter off that group and say as the vice president that you somehow have delivered more wins for them when Trump has that proven track record, even if he is now rhetorically waffling. Yeah, uh, I think it's going to be interesting to see where uh, where this goes. My understanding was that he'd already tried the executive privilege argument mm. and failed, and that's why Jack Smith has him in front of oh, the boy. grand jury. So <laughs> well, in I, that case. Yeah, I, I'm not so sure that that's going to work. Um, you know, I, I, we'll see where he actually goes with this, but I think uh, Mike Pence is going to be very guarded. Um, he, he's a pretty smart politician. Uh, he just, as we said, he's a homeless one, and, we'll, you know, that's not a good place to be. But you have a home here at Rising, and we'll be back to give you more. Journalist E. Jean Carroll took to the stand yesterday in her lawsuit against former President Trump. She accuses Trump of raping her in a department store dressing room in 1996. Things apparently got heated on the stand when Carroll faced cross-examination from the former president's lawyers. According to CNN reporting, Trump attorney Joe Tacopina pressed Carroll on why she didn't scream during the alleged assault, which she says lasted for three minutes. She replied, quote, I was too much in panic to scream. You can't beat up on me for not screaming. Women who don't come forward, one of the reasons they don't come forward is they are asked why they didn't scream. Some women scream, some women don't. It keeps women silent. When pressed further, she replied, quote, I'm telling you, he raped me whether I screamed or not. I don't need an excuse for not screaming. 
Carroll is suing Trump for battery and defamation. He has vehemently denied all wrongdoing. Reporter for The Hill, Zach Schoenfeld, is here with us to discuss. Welcome, Zach. How are you doing? Good. Thanks so much for having me. So what was your overall impression uh, of the beginning of this trial? Do you think that Takapina's aggressive stance was actually effective, or do you think that this played more to uh, the plaintiff's uh, hand right here? Well, this case at the end of the day will really come down to how this jury that's sitting in lower Manhattan views the credibility of each witness. Uh, the judge had noted in a pretrial ruling that this is effectively a he said, she said case. There's no physical evidence. There's no videotapes or security footage of this alleged assault. So this is really going to come down to as each witness takes the stand. We saw Eugene Carroll become the first witness to take the stand. We're expecting uh, a few others in the coming days. Uh, and it will really depend on who the jury believes. Uh, she has uh, said now over uh, many hours of testimony, she's been both uh, on direct examination, and now we've seen uh, the beginning of cross-examination from Trump's legal team uh, trying to poke holes in her story. Uh, there is more cross-examination to go. Eugene Carroll is expected to come back to the stand uh, on Monday and continue that cross-examination. Uh, but the line of questioning that she's been receiving from Trump's lawyers uh, is what we've been seeing them uh, argue in, in filing since this case was first filed. Uh, they say that she made this story up to uh, sell her book effectively. Uh, and as you were saying earlier, uh, that th these exchanges got quite testy in the courtroom reportedly yesterday, uh, as she says that she is telling the truth. Uh, and that all these these claims and arguments that the Trump legal team is, is making up just aren't the case. So surely a testy exchange with much more to come from these witnesses in the coming days. I also saw during the trial that Les Moonves's name came up. He is the former CBS executive who was ousted for uh, sexual misconduct allegations. Can you tell us a little bit more about why he was mentioned during the trial? I'm not sure exactly why he specifically was mentioned, but uh, what Eugene Carroll's strategy has been in this trial is she is, is calling in uh, both two friends that she said uh, that she told shortly after this incident, uh, as well as she will call in two other women who say uh, that Trump uh, sexually assaulted them. Now, Trump has also denied those women's allegations. Um, but this is really part of a, of a broader puzzle here that Eugene Carroll's legal team is trying to put together in order to, to portray to the jury uh, that even if they don't believe Eugene Carroll's own words, that they can believe uh, the testimony from these other women that have come forward with accusations against the former president uh, or her friends who, who are expected to testify uh, that her private account uh, is, is what she's been telling them for 25 years in private uh, is effectively the same as it's told in court. Um, so a lot of this is just putting together pieces of this puzzle as Eugene Carroll's team is hoping to convince the jury uh, to, to give her some credibility and to, to believe these accusations that she's coming forward with. So for anybody who might not be familiar, what is specifically, and we know that this is a defamation case, what specifically is she saying, what, you know, defamed her, uh, that the president tweeted or said or truthed? Uh, what, what is it that she's saying is, is defamatory? So E. Jean Carroll, after she came forward publicly with these accusations that, sec uh, that Trump sexually assaulted her in the mid-1990s, she has since filed two lawsuits against him. So the trial that we're seeing go on this week is the second lawsuit that she has filed. That first lawsuit, which involves just defamation claims, it does not sue him over the alleged assault itself. Uh, that is still in a pretrial stage. Uh, it, there's some other legal issues that are holding that up, so that could come to trial in the future. 
But what this case is over is over two different claims. There's defamation uh, and then actually over the sexual alleged sexual assault itself. So the defamation claim in this case is over a truth social post that Trump made in October 2022. In that post, he called her claims, uh, in this case, a total con job. Uh, she once, He once again attacked her appearance, saying that she was not his type uh, and other comments like that. So Carol is trying to prove to this jury that that post uh, was a lie uh, and, that, and that it harmed her reputation by bringing uh, this back up into the public sphere uh, and continuing to, to deny her accusations. So it's both over that claim of defamation and then what she also has done in this second case is New York in November, a new law went into effect that temporarily lifted the statute of limitations uh, for any individual attempting to sue uh, someone for damages over sexual offenses. So it gives them a one-year window uh, to file those claims, even if these uh, alleged assaults had happened many years ago, uh, as is the case here. Uh, so she is using that one-year look-back window to both sue him for civil damages over the alleged assault itself, as well as that claim of defamation. But even after this trial is over, as I mentioned, there's still that other case, which includes an additional three statements that Trump made during his presidency that Carol also will claim were defamatory. What is at stake in this trial? How much money are we talking about if E. Jean Carroll were to emerge victorious? She hasn't asked for a specific amount of damages. She's leaving that up to the jury. So the jury, when they, as this trial concludes, they'll go back in their room and, and debate and, and come to a verdict. Uh, and if they decide by a preponderance of the evidence uh, that, that Trump should be held liable, at that point, they'll be able to decide for themselves uh, of what, uh, of how much uh, Trump should be ordered to pay her. So in terms of an exact dollar figure, uh, that's not exactly clear yet. Um, at this point, we're still in the stage of whether that Eugene Carroll's legal team has actually proven those claims. So uh, that will come as part of the verdict when, when the jury comes back. But uh, it's ultimately up to this jury that I should note, uh, the judge has taken significant steps to ensure their anonymity, uh, citing the former president's uh, attacks in other cases uh, on those involved in legal proceedings against him. So we don't know the names of these jurors. Uh, they are being brought in from a secret location every day. They are being brought in lunches so they don't have to go out and eat lunch. So a lot of steps being taken here to protect the anonymity of this jury as they attempt to arrive at both the verdict as well as if the former president needs to pay any damages. Has Trump's team claimed that any of this is political? We know that that's been a defense for many of his other legal troubles. Has he said that this is a political attack or some way to, to stop him from running again? Has that uh, been part of the defense, or are they just sticking to attacking E. Jean Carroll and her character? It's a little bit of both. They have, first of all, have attacked Eugene Carroll specifically uh, and, and personally, but they also have tied this, like many of the other legal battles uh, that 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 is currently the, the former president's involved in, painting this as, as a little bit of a political persecution. Uh, they've noted uh, that she did not come forward publicly with her claims until Trump was the sitting president in 2019. Now, Eugene Carroll has said she did not come forward because she was afraid that the former, or then uh, the real estate mogul Trump would come after her and retaliate against her. Uh, she has said she only came forward uh, after the Me Too movement uh, and the accusations against Harvey Weinstein. She says that's what gave her the strength to come forward. Um, but that hasn't stopped the, the former president and his allies um, from attacking her both personally, uh, as well as saying that, that she is being politically motivated. Um, e. Jean Carroll is someone who has said that 
uh, that uh, she does not like the former president, even outside of this and, and, and all of that. So, so certainly uh, attempting to paint it that way. Uh, Trump's legal team has also taken aim uh, that a major Democratic donor, Reid Hoffman, uh, who has donated millions to Democrats and liberal causes, uh, has helped pay some of the legal bills here. So we are seeing some of those political attacks from Trump camp. Zach Schoenfeld from The Hill, thank you so much for joining us, and we'll be back with more Rising. National Guardsman and accused Pentagon intel leaker Jack Teixeira is being detained while a federal judge decides whether or not he may live with his parents while awaiting trial. Prosecutors argue Teixeira, 21, destroyed evidence, made posts about violence and murder, and could still pose a threat to national security. According to a new court filing, prosecutors alleged Teixeira took obstructive steps after the Justice Department began investigating the leak, including smashing electronic devices and telling other Discord users to delete messages. Here to break it all down for us is News Nation's Evan Lambert. Evan, welcome back to Rising. So good to see you again. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So tell us about Teixeira's uh, efforts to cover his tracks. Obviously, it doesn't seem like they worked very well, but now they're leading, apparently, the Justice Department to discuss whether or not he's actually allowed to be out pending trial. Right. So a lot of this came from a court filing that was in support of the government's argument yesterday in court to keep Texera behind bars pending the trial. And from that filing, we saw a lot of photos for the first time from inside Texera's home, his bedroom, uh, and some of those smashed devices, which the government says speaks to the fact that he was trying to cover his tracks, obstruct justice. And they're arguing that if he gets out, he might do something similar. So they found inside his room uh, a lot of weapons, uh, a gas mask, uh, also a silencer, they say, and also they found in a trash can near his house, a dumpster, that's where they found some of those smashed devices, an Xbox, laptop, a tablet. And so they say that this is evidence of once his name was out there, once he got the sense that the FBI was onto him, that he was trying to cover up his tracks. And that's one of the reasons that they argued he should not be let out of jail. <clears throat> So, Evan, it's, what we're hearing is that he has some sort of checkered past. He had made some racial threats and some violent threats uh, early on when he was in high school. Uh, is there any word on whether he is—he just kind of slipped through the cracks into the military and then got these certifications that gave him uh, access to these documents? Or was it— uh, a situation where the military allows for that if you don't have a felony conviction. I know if you get a felony conviction, uh, then you have to sign a moral conduct waiver, uh, and usually that would prevent you from getting certain uh, security clearances. Is there, is there any word whether this was a mistake or whether they just allowed for him to, to do this because that's policy? Look, you picked up on the key question here. Many people are asking, after seeing some of this history that's alleged in these court documents, how did he get into the Air National Guard to begin with as the first question? And the second question, a few years later, get that top secret clearance in, in uh, 2021. So, you know, some of these statements that he's supposed to have made in high school, that was 2018. He joined the Air National Guard just a little bit more than a year later in 2019, September 2019. Uh, but, you know, he started entry level, really. He got that top secret clearance, we know, in 2021. So I guess there is a question. Uh, during that screening process, you would think that 
what happened in 2018 in high school would have come up. And, you know, it's more than just uh, saying these threats, allegedly, that the police at the time in 2018 uh, actually were so concerned that when he went to apply for a gun permit, he was denied. So this obviously came up in, in the system there in Massachusetts uh, when he was trying to get a gun permit and he was denied because of the concerns of local law enforcement about some of the things that he had talked about in school in 2018. And this was classmates overhearing him, uh, according to prosecutors, talk about uh, guns at school, Molotov cocktails, and, and making racial threats. And so that flagged enough concern among police to deny the gun permit. And the question is, why wouldn't that have come up in any kind of security review for top secret clearance in 2021, which we know he was granted and then allowed him to have access to all this highly classified information that he then allegedly leaked on this Discord server. And we've seen went far beyond that uh, onto Telegram and, and Twitter and other social media accounts and probably into the hands uh, of, of Russia. Evan, I'm also wondering about the potential motivations for his leaks, because it seems like typically when we hear about these massive national security breaches, it's usually from someone who feels like they're doing this for the greater good. They leak to media outlets. In this case, it was almost like he was bragging to his online friends. Uh, what's, what's the story on that? Yeah, so I think it probably speaks maybe to his maturity level. This is a, a young person uh, who obviously felt like they were, he was among like people on this Discord group. You know, they bonded over their love of video games, sharing racist memes in, the, in that group chat. Uh, and so it sounds like he was motivated partly, as you said, to kind of brag. And, you know, first from some of the reporting, it sounded like some of the other people in this group didn't really take what he was describing seriously. At first, he was posting about it uh, from just memory and then eventually started taking pictures of these highly classified documents and posting them. And so uh, what's interesting is that kind of segues into one of the arguments that the government made in court yesterday, saying if he gets out, uh, you know, there, there could be more fallout from this. And uh, his defense team was saying, Look, he didn't really know that this was going to go past that group chat of some 20, 30 young people. And the judge really took issue with that, saying, you know, how did he not know that posting something so secretive online, you know, wouldn't stay in that tiny little corner of the Internet? You know, it, it's kind of common sense that when you post something on the Internet, it could be for everyone to see. Uh, and so that may play into the judge's decision on whether or not he gets out of jail pending trial. And I should note here that the judge took that decision under advisement yesterday, said that he wasn't going to make a ruling immediately, but we are expecting that really uh, at any moment in the coming days, potentially. And in the meantime, Texera is in custody. Are there any changes being proposed uh, in order to prevent something like this from happening again, anything from the Pentagon or the military where they're trying to prevent someone like Jack Teixeira from, from gaining access to these sorts of things. We know that this has probably been a nightmare for them, uh, not only in public relations, but just in terms of fear of what people have and what they could potentially expose. Are, is there anything that they are working on that you've heard uh, in order to prevent the next Jack Teixeira from coming out? So the Pentagon hasn't been super explicit about what they're doing to make sure that this doesn't happen again, but this is definitely all under review and it's certainly you know, gotten a ton of negative attention and really gotten us into trouble or potentially 
will get us into trouble with some of our allies, some of what you know, leaked out here. Uh, and so clearly there is a process that's going on and we are starting to see some of the fallout. Just a few days ago, the Air Force put out a statement saying that two of the commanders in the squadron that Texera worked for, the uh, intelligence support unit, um, he was based in uh, at an, a base in Cape Cod, Two of those commanders have been suspended pending this investigation. So that's just a bit of the fallout, but we do expect it to be uh, more broader and uh, take a look at you know the kinds of people that have access to these secret documents, the secret information. You know, in Tixera's role, you know, he really needed to have access to this in order to do his job. Uh, but first. I think one thing that they'll be looking at is why some of what's been reported in his background did not raise any red flags in his review to get that top secret security clearance. Well, Evan Lambert, News Nation correspondent and fellow Baltimore Orioles fan, uh, it was great having you. Thank you so much for all of the information that you were giving us. We'll be back with more Rising after this. Podcaster Joe Rogan is commenting on President Biden's age after he officially announced his 2024 re-election bid. Let's watch. The fact that he's running again is so wild. When you watch him talk, the fact that there's no leadership that can find a solution to this, because there really is no solution. I mean, we've bantered about it, you and I, and a lot of other people have as well. Like, what are they going to do? Like, what is, what is the, other than Biden dying, like very soon, and then someone stepping up in a big way that which makes is not, sense. Which is not beyond the realm of possibility. He's older than the average life expectancy, I believe, already. Mm -hmm. Not saying he will die, but that that is possible. Um, I'm sure there are a lot of people like in the Democratic establishment who have been like I, I could just imagine there's a boardroom with like very powerful people meeting who they're like, okay. We're getting them out. What's the plan? Like, how do we do this? And I think they just cannot come up with one. I can't I think... come up with one. Well, Joe Rogan isn't the only one to publicly speculate on Biden's age. 2024 GOP presidential candidate Nikki Haley is not pulling punches when it comes to President Biden. She recently suggested during a Fox News appearance that the 80-year-old commander-in-chief won't live to see 86. I think there's a few issues here. You know, he's announced his... Um, you know, that he's running again in 2024. And I think that we can all be very clear and, and say with a matter of fact that if you vote for Joe Biden, you really are counting on a President Harris because the idea that he would make it until 86 years old is not... Um, is not something that I think is likely. It's why I've continued to say we need to have mental competency tests up until the state, you know, starting at 75, just to make sure that these people deciding our national security, deciding our economic policy, deciding what happens to our kids in schools, it matters. And I, you know, I think, so I think you look at that. I think there's a reason that he campaigned in his basement in the last election. He got a pass. This time, how much is he going to do? But right now, just being president, he won't answer the question. A reminder that NBC News polling shows 70 percent of Americans don't want Biden to run again, with a majority citing age as a reason. <laughs> so, I, I don't know. Uh, saying he's going to die in the next five years is a little bit morbid. Uh, I do think there's some kind of health issue going on that's pretty evident to people who watch him try to 
fumble his way through a, a day of work in the White House. But I don't know. Maybe you disagree, Jason. Yeah, I disagree. Uh, I think, number one, well, first let's start with Nikki Haley. I think that <laughs> her comments were strategically smart because Vice President Harris is less popular Very than Joe true. Biden. And people believe that she's even less competent. So I think that it was strategically a smart thing to say, are you ready for Vice President Harris to be president? Um, and that's a kind of a prevailing sentiment on both sides of the aisle is Biden is old and frail. He does not speak even as well as he did uh, when he was vice president under President Obama. However, uh, one of the things that we've seen is he's been really effective, whether you agree with his policies or not. He's gotten a ton done. Ew, he's gotten nothing a, good done. Yeah, well, that, that's done, a but. that's a different thing because you have a different political agenda. But when you look at his, I think inflation speaks for itself. Well, but go ahead. Yeah, well, I think inflation is also global. We can look at some of the countries around the world that are experiencing inflation. I think I read that Argentina is at 104 percent right now, or you know, but yearly uh, inflation, but. The point is, he has gotten, you know, that Inflation Reduction Act. And, and what does it say about Republicans if they can't outsmart an old, frail man who oh, seems not, to trust, win? And trust me, I'm not here to defend the Republican Party because oh, I, I have I, a lot of issues. There. Yeah, no, I have, I have a lot of issues with Biden. Yeah. Biden's not my guy. I'm just saying that he, you know, just objectively, when we look at the policies that he's gotten through, he's gotten quite a bit through, some on a bipartisan major uh, uh, basis. And some, you know, he's been able to, like, find wiggle room through reconciliation and do all these savvy things that you only get when you uh, have been in Congress for 75 years like he has. Yeah. Um, so I think this idea of underestimating him sometimes can play into his favor. I don't think this is going to help uh, Nikki Haley get to the top of the Republican heap. She's got a long way to go. Uh, she's got to get past another guy who's going to be an octogenarian very soon. Um, and when you talk about health, Donald Trump is morbidly obese. <laughs> so he's, you know, will he live? Uh, I think that that's actually—it uh, was, while it was strategically smart to say that, um, it is morbid, and there's also karma, because we can die—any of us can exactly, die at any yeah. point. Maybe, you know, I'll, I'll be open about the fact that I— I'm at least spiritual, if not religious, and I'm not going to go around and be like, this guy's going to die. <laughs> no, know? I hear you. Wouldn't I agree with me. you. That's, that's bad karma for sure. And I feel like Nikki Haley's kind of auditioning to be the vice presidential pick right now. Yeah, because, which she's not going to be. No. But. And she also, <laughs> she did that thing where she went after DeSantis on the battle with Disney in Florida and offered to have Disney move all of their jobs to South Carolina, <laughs> which was just idiotic because you can't just pick up an amusement park and move it to another state. But yeah. that's beside the point. Um, I feel like she um, realizes that her stock is not rising the way she thought it would on the campaign trail and is kind of trying to say grabby things to see if she can get her poll numbers to rise because right now she's at, what, like 4%. Um, so it just seems, like you said, strategic to try to garner some headlines and some attention. The only story I saw about Nikki Haley before this week was the fact that a Newsweek reporter reached out to her to ask about a controversy surrounding the dress that she wore to her daughter's wedding. <laughs> and if you're running for president, that's not what you want the conversation to be about. Right. And and her abortion speech was a big flop, yes. big failure. She didn't state a position. She just kind of got up there and said, abortion. 
you know, and, and that's not going to play very well. Um, just the fact that she's a woman is not going to get her anywhere. Um, I think this is, of we course. harder in heels. Right. What she said. Oh, my God. That was so I mean, I think Donald Trump, it's Donald Trump's race to lose on the GOP side. Uh, we've seen the people that even get a little bit of buzz, uh, they seem to, to f you know, kind of fail. And I would honestly say that I think in terms of VPs, if I'm Donald Trump, I'm choosing Tim Scott. Mm. I think Tim Scott is the best choice. He comes across as, you know, moderate and measured and someone who can soften Trump. He'll be the adult in the room. Um, he's not someone who's going to, you know, who has a big personality that will challenge Trump. And I think that that's, and again, he, he does something that I think is even more important for Republicans, and that is that as a black man, he kind of divides, you know, black women are not going anywhere. They're going right. to vote Democratic. They are the backbone of the Democratic Party. But black men are a little more pliable. That's true. And they're not, you're not going to get a big number of black men. Let me, let me just be clear about that. But if you get no a, illusions here. a sliver, and again, they only needed 11,780 votes in, in Georgia. If you get 11,780 normal Democratic voting black men to stay home, you know, then you win and you start winning elections. So I think uh, Tim Scott, when a lot of the guys that Donald Trump, black men that Donald Trump was trying to push out there and say, I'm not racist, look, 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 those guys weren't smart to be honest. They're former athletes and, and things like that. Right. Tim Scott is in a different category, and he's somebody who comes across as, hey, I will be the adult in the room. I'm somebody who will, uh, you know, make Trump more of a moderate type of character and can win some of those independent votes. Um, and I don't think Nikki Haley's the, the one there. I don't think Nikki Haley has that kind of... Uh, you know, she doesn't have a ton of charisma. I don't right, think right, she's right. super popular amongst women. I don't think she adds anything. I do think that Tim Scott is going to have to answer on the campaign trail for his work on criminal justice reform, because with rising crime, that's going to be a big issue Republicans want to talk about heading into 2024. But I'm glad we're in agreement on disliking Nikki Haley. <laughs> we can always go back and talk about her anytime yeah. and know that I don't we can like find Tim an Scott area either. Well, fair <laughs> enough. But uh, one more, last thing I want to share on the Biden thing is I read this Politico article today that said the vast majority of his events take place between 10 a.m. and 4 p.m., which is a total octogenarian move, so you gotta <laughs> love that. But we'll be back with more Rising after this. The White House is denying President Biden gets fed questions from reporters in advance. This comes after images emerged from a press conference earlier this week appearing to show Biden with a cheat sheet. Reporters grilled White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre on how reporters are chosen for this sheet. Here's what she had to say. American people. How are the reporters decided? So, um, so the way that we have moved forward uh, with this type of uh, process is that we reach out to uh, a number of reporters who uh, who are going to who we know are going to be at the press conference, uh, and that's what we did yesterday. Uh, and also, we try to be really mindful and who who has not gotten a question in a while. 
Uh, and, uh, and so, as you know, we could only pick two reporters yesterday, so that limits our ability on how many reporters we can call on. Uh, Mary's not here, but I can say one of the reasons that we, uh, we picked Mary is because she was just named a, a chief White House correspondent for ABC and had not gotten a, a question in some time. And we picked the Los Angeles Times, uh, which has gotten a, which has not gotten a question in some time, and I want to add uh, that the fact that California has the largest South Cor uh, Korean American population in any state in the country, and uh, and LA has the biggest population of any city in America, and LAT is the biggest daily paper serving that population. So we are mindful on who we pick and who we want to communicate out to, and so that's how we move forward uh, with Mary and Courtney. Uh, we thought that is pretty reasonable, wanting to, as we have the South Korean president uh, uh, with us during this press conference, uh, because we wanted to also communicate with the Korean-American. So that's usually how we move this process forward. So I've been at these press conferences before. I covered the White House for The Daily Caller. And it is true that these reporters get chosen in advance because there's only a couple of questions that are allowed during the joint pressers. but. I've never seen an instance where the entire question is also printed on the piece of paper for the president. And in my experience, it just seems like it's always the corporate media outlets who do get those two questions. So for her to say, well, the ABC and the LA, and, or in the LA Times don't get questions very often was like, what? Like people sitting in the back of the briefing room never get a question. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I think it's, um, you know, they're trying to reach if I were to make an argument for Corinne Jean-Pierre, I would say you're trying to reach the largest audience. So you can take in, uh, something from The Daily Caller, a question from The Daily Caller, or you could take it from ABC News, which is you know going to reach a, a really large audience. Of course, everyone's at the, the same presser, but I, I think that's probably where they want to go with that. Also, this is the problem with partisan news. Uh, you know, like people are going to take questions from people who are friendly. And both parties do it. Trump did it. He's probably going to take a question from The Daily Caller or from, you know, Fox News. Uh, Obama or Biden, they're going to take it from outlets that they think are friendly. And you're not going to get the difficult questions out there. And that's, I think, one of the problems with the way our news is set up today. I thought it was interesting how she pointed out the Korean population in L.A., um, which is true. But the question that the L.A. Times reporter asked about, I don't think had anything to do with that. She was asking about semiconductor manufacturing. So it's like, OK, why would you bring that up? Um, but also— But wasn't the Korean— He was—yeah, so he uh, was there. Was, but, yeah. but the question wasn't about that. So right. I didn't really understand what why she would bring that up otherwise. But— the main problem I have with this specific cheat sheet that we saw the image of, again, is the fact that there's this full question on there. And I think the LA Times reporter defended herself, or the LA Times defended themselves, by claiming that her question wasn't exactly what was printed on the paper. But I don't think there's any reason why a self-respecting journalist would send in a full written question to a politician so that they can prepare in advance. That's right. just inappropriate and unethical. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that 100%. Um, the, I think perhaps, I, I can't say this for <laughs> sure, but perhaps they're trying to avoid uh, a, a journalist going up there and airing our dirty, dirty laundry in front of 
the South Koreans and asking about something that didn't have anything to do with South Korea or international politics in that region or about dealing with North Korea or dealing with China or any of the things that would affect South Korea. Uh, and that might actually embarrass the United States of America, not embarrass Joe Biden, but embarrass actually our country by talking about some of our internal issues rather than what they were there to discuss. So I'm thinking that that's the thinking behind getting some of these, you know, at least a broad idea of what uh, questions are going to be asked. Yeah, and I know it's typical for the reporters to say, hey, I'm going to be at this press conference. Here's the topic that I want to ask about. Right. But a whole question, I think, is totally out of bounds. I agree. And um, I think that this would be less of a scandal in terms of reporters being like, why did you pick these particular people if Biden gave more access to the press? He has been one of the least accessible presidents in modern times. He's only given one sit-down interview in the last year, and I believe it was to the Associated Press's Zeke Miller. He doesn't come out in the briefing room like Trump or Obama did. Um, he doesn't really work the line out when he's boarding or deboarding Marine One very frequently. And even in the press briefings that do happen on mostly a daily basis with Karine Jean-Pierre, she tends to only take questions from the first two rows or the same reporters over and over and over again. So I just think a lot of this could be avoided if people could go to the briefing room and have a reasonable, reasonable expectation that they're going to be called on and get to ask the question that they've been prepping for. No, I, I agree with that 100%. But the only thing that I'm going to disagree is that reporters had a whole lot of access to Trump. I think um, even with, with his uh, uh, press briefing room and his press secretary, they didn't have press briefings for like what was it, like a year and a half? Yeah, they didn't that, have yeah, that was under um, Stephanie Grisham. But even yeah. uh, if you include that period of time throughout the Trump four years, he actually did provide significantly more access overall than President Obama. Um, because every time that he would leave the White House to travel somewhere, he would speak to a press gaggle next to Marine One for as meant long as yeah, 20, Trump, 30 Trump minutes. Trump loves the, loves the camera, and he loves yeah. the microphone. So he's, he does uh, speak, and a lot of times he would speak and say something, and then the White House would clean it up afterwards. So you weren't really getting uh, a good sense of where he stood on a lot of things or where the White House stood on a lot of things. Um, but I still think, again, we need more access to the president. Um, it is good, though, that there is, on some level, uh, more transparency through the press briefings that you get from Karine Jean-Pierre and her predecessor uh, before that we didn't get under Trump. And you got a little bit more of that uh, towards the end with— um, Kaylee McEnany. Yeah. McEnany. And I'm a fan of having more press briefings. I thought that the Trump administration should have had them. I was there from 2019 to 2020 pretty much— four times a week, and that was during the period of time when Stephanie Gershom was in, and they didn't have press briefings. Right. And I can tell you it was very, very frustrating trying to get any type of communications yeah. from them. Um, but I also think that direct access to the president is obviously a different thing than going through a press secretary, because that's something that is very, uh, I guess, um, planned. They have their binders. They're speaking on behalf of the president. There's a lot of spin that happens in that room on both sides of the aisle. And I think any chance you can hear directly from the president and have him answer the questions of the media, 
directly is always a good thing for public transparency. No, I agree. We definitely need more transparency and we will transparently be right back on Rising. Florida Congressman Matt Gates wants everyone to be hyped about what is next for Tucker Carlson after his shock exit from Fox News, tweeting, OMG, wait till everyone sees what Tucker has planned. While we don't know what that is yet, Carlson's first statement after his exit from Fox News has garnered 57 million views in less than 24 hours. For reference, Carlson's primetime show on Fox averaged just over 3 million viewers a night. According to a new report in the New York Times, the day before Dominion Voting Systems' defamation trial against Fox was set to begin, the Fox Board of Directors made a startling discovery of, yes, more unseen texts by Carlson about Fox management. Forbes has published a number of these texts. One message from Carlson to an unknown receiver said, quote, those efforts are destroying our credibility, blaming Fox's controversies on, quote, a combination of incompetent incompetent liberals and top leadership without with too much pride to back down. <laughs> okay. Well, I I've heard from some reporting from my friend Greg Price that Fox actually knew about these texts a year ago. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not sure how accurate this reporting is. It almost seems to me like Fox is maybe trying to leak out the reasons for Tucker's exit because people are really angry with them. But it's hard to know at this point what the real reason is because nobody will just outright tell us. Right. I, you know, again, this is this is the thing. Fox is absolutely afraid of its audience. We saw that um, after this is the whole thing with Dominion is right. like they were afraid. They were afraid people were going to go to Newsmax. Then they fired Tucker Carlson. And of course, people are going to Newsmax right now. And so they are deathly afraid. They want to show some sort of reasoning. This is why they leaked the, the uh, alleged slur that Tucker allegedly used for one of the women, right. the women executives. They're, they're trying to cover their tracks, but they don't want to explicitly come out on air and say, you know, he was problematic or he's costing us money or whatever the cause is. Uh, I think they're trying to, again, w walk a tightrope. And a lot of times when you walk tight ropes, you fall. So mm. we'll see what happens with Fox. Here. I like that analogy. Um, and, you know, the whole Dominion lawsuit, perhaps being the impetus for the exit, um, will become clearer if that's the case over the next couple of months, because there are other Fox anchors who are named in that lawsuit who still have jobs at the network. So yeah. it would be interesting if Tucker was the only person who was let go uh, because of that, especially since he was the person who on air really uh, pushed back on Sidney Powell's claim to have evidence right. of voter fraud. Um, but I'm really interested to see what he does next. My best guess is that he does something independent, right? Because he has these personal studios in Florida and in Maine. The clip that he posted on Twitter, I think, was from his Maine studio. It looked like the one that he mm -hmm. um, tapes Tucker Carlson today on. Um, at least that's my best guess. And the fact that that video got almost 60 million views just by posting on Twitter is absolutely bonkers. I don't know if you saw this too, but the Rumble CEO commented below his tweet with a heart emoji. So is Tucker going to start a new show and post on Rumble? Uh, we'll see. I think it would make the most sense for him to go independent. Uh, he obviously does not need to have another boss 
right. I don't think that that works very well for Tucker. And we've seen that he can build a media company. He built the, the Daily Caller. Um, he doesn't own it anymore, but he built that. So we know that he has the capability to do that. Uh, as you said, he's got the studios. Uh, there are many people in this business who would want to work, particularly on the right, who would love to work for Tucker Carlson. Uh, and he still has a whole lot of influence. He's got Matt Gates, who's in government, sitting there tweeting at him, uh, so I, or tweeting about him. So I think Tucker, uh, from what I'm hearing, he's going to be sidelined for about 18 months. That's mm -hmm. the reporting. He's getting $1.6 million uh, a month. So he can, you know, kind of stack some money up and build something really, really uh, influential. Uh, and building your own thing isn't easy. You know, we, we've seen O'Reilly building his own thing. And while I interviewed him and O'Reilly was like, yeah, I'm making tons more money than I did at Fox, I was like, Really? Sure? We, we sure about that? <laughs> you sure about that? Uh, but that, that's what he claims. And I don't think that his no spin news has really taken off. Uh, but I think Tucker is in a different category. Tucker, we've seen uh, he has connections here and overseas. And there are a lot of there's a lot of support out there for him. Fox is trying to mitigate some of this damage, but they're going to take a hit. I don't know how large that hit will be and how long it will last, but they're going to take a hit, and I'm sure they're glad that Tucker is sidelined for the election season, yeah. and they hope that people will still tune in for their election news. Right, yeah. I think Tucker's going to be just fine, but it is really a bummer that we're not going to hear his voice heading into the 2024 election. Um, he has been a shaper of conservative politics for the past seven years that he's been on air. He's been a very original voice. He's sort of helped craft the the principles and the ideology behind what was Trumpism in 2016 and made it sort of a coherent philosophy. Um, and he also covers stories that nobody else talks about. I mean, he has this pizza man on his show who tripped a would-be carjacker. He talks about the UFO reports that come out of the federal government. It was just such a unique angle for a cable news show, particularly one that was airing on primetime, so mm -hmm. I think it's a shame that we're not going to have his voice. Um, maybe there's some way they can negotiate the exit package more quickly. Of course, Fox <laughs> is not going to want that. And yeah. uh, from the preliminary things that we've seen regarding the ratings, it looks like the typical ratings for Tucker's hour, the 8 p.m. hour, were maybe about half of what they normally yeah. would be this week. Um, I think I heard 20 percent. They're down 20 percent. Down 20 percent. Yeah. So that, Either way, that's, that's significant. A, that's a, yeah, that's huge for cable. And he's down significantly in that prime demographic, which is the uh, 25 to 54 yeah. age range, which is the younger viewers. Um, Tucker, I think, was the best performing person on cable news for that demographic. That's what advertisers really look at. Now, the flip side of this is that a lot of advertisers fled Fox News from Tucker's show because of these organized boycotts from places like Media Matters. Um, so if they get someone in there who is a little bit more palatable to um, some of the corporations that might be advertising on Fox, then maybe they can make up for the lost ratings in advertiser revenue. Yeah, that, that's possible. I, I'm thinking about the, the Fox talent. I don't see anybody who uh, can take Tucker's place. Maybe Gutfield. I don't know. But uh, it's going to be tough to replace Tucker Carlson, um, you know, regardless of what you think about his politics. Uh, I absolutely think they're absolutely insane. But <laughs> I will say this. 
um, he is a generational talent yes. when it comes to this media stuff and this media business. So And a great writer. I hope he starts writing columns again. Yeah, no, he is a very good writer. I and you know, I've interviewed him. I've been on I was a regular on his show for about two years. Um, I, I know him and he's he's really good at what he does. And I think whatever he launches is gonna be successful. Kind of like rising. And we'll be back with more rising. This week, lawyers of Abby Grossberg, the former Fox News booker who was suing Tucker Carlson, confirmed to me that Grossberg never actually met the former network anchor while working for Fox News. Saying, quote, Abby never met Tucker Carlson in person because he taped the show from his personal studios in Maine and Florida. I was kind of, I guess, surprised at this because it seems like a, an obvious admission that might hurt the case because Abby Grossberg's um, only mention of Tucker in the lawsuit as being to blame for the supposed sexist and hostile workplace she encountered was this claim that Tucker was somehow directing this or encouraging this. And I think that's kind of a hard thing to determine if you're not actually working in the same office with the man. Well, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think there, there certainly can be abusive uh, behavior. I'm, not, I'm certainly not saying that's the case in, in this situation, but you can abuse somebody virtually. I mean, the way we work is so different now, post-pandemic. You know, we live in a Zoom era. Uh, you certainly can can mistreat somebody that works for you from a distance. Uh, I don't know that that's the case. And from what I saw in the interview, I believe it was on MSNBC with mm -hmm. Abby Grossberg, I got to say, it, it didn't leave me like super convinced. Now, again, as we've already stated, have, you know, some sort of tangential relationship with with Tucker and we're friendly. Um, it's not even tangential. I'll just say we're friendly. Um, so I don't want to... Uh, sit here and throw him under the bus. Uh, and I certainly want to give Abby Grossberg her due if, you know, give her the opportunity to say what she has to say in court. But from what I saw on, in her interview, I came away very unconvinced um, that she's going to be able to make a strong case. Now, there are 30, what is it, 34 hours of, of tape? Yeah, she has 90 tapes spanning 34 hours, I yeah. think they said. I mean, so we don't know. We haven't heard the highlights from those tapes. We haven't heard Tucker's voice or any of the right, other right, people right. Who, are, who are named in that. So we'll see if that shows something that maybe she did not discuss. Maybe she's holding back because she's waiting for her day in court or for her day uh, in some sort of arbitration to get... Um, a, a big settlement. So we'll, we'll see where that goes. Um, but yeah, from her interview... Yeah, and I did ask the lawyers about that, by the way. I asked if they had any recordings that included Tucker's voice, and they said that they were still reviewing the audio tapes. But I know that in the lawsuit itself, there are never any accusations that Tucker said any of the things that she took issue with. It's more that she believes that he was setting the tone for the show, mm. which, again, is, like, hard to determine when you're all working in separate locations. Like, it's one thing if somebody says something to you over text or over Zoom that you find abusive or belittling or sexist. It's another to kind of determine intent or motivation um, when you're remote from people. One of the other things that the lawyer said in the statement was that it was 
normal for staff of Tucker to not meet him. So this was not unusual that Abby never met him. Um, based on people that I've spoken to who are former Fox staff, that's not accurate. They said that basically every person that ever works on Tucker Carlson tonight has flown down to Florida or up to Maine at some point to meet Tucker and work on set. And the reason that she was not is because it was determined pretty quickly after she started working there that this was not a good fit with the show. Right. And so they didn't really feel like she was going to last that long due to some early performance issues that were becoming evident. So the other question is, that this lawsuit is against Fox News. It's not necessarily directly against Tucker. It does name Tucker as a co-defendant. Okay. And then some of the producers on the show. Yeah. So that's so, what's interesting. And then she also talks in the lawsuit about her time working on Sunday Morning Futures with Maria Bartiromo. Mm -hmm. And she says that she experienced a sexist and hostile workplace environment there, too, but it wasn't from... Maria, it was from her coworkers, and the reason she transferred to Tucker Carlson tonight was to try to get away from it, and then she feels like she just ended up experiencing more of the same. Well, if she wasn't a good fit and she was able to be transferred within the company, why didn't they transfer her to another right. show? Right, and producers are transferred all the time at Fox. Like, if you ask yeah. to be transferred, they'll move you. It's pretty common, so I agree with that. I want to get to this statement that the lawyer sent to me and Greg Price, another um, person with a journalistic experience who has been talking about this story because it's fairly unhinged, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, I was reaching, up for a follow reaching out for a follow-up story, and I get this email with Greg CC'd, and the subject line is press inquiries from the MAGA Twitter sphere. And then when you go through, it's this sort of really long rant that talks about how Tucker and his producers were sexist brothers in arms. It refers to them as Tweedledee and Tweedledum male colleagues. And then at the very end warns that you have to print the statement in full or you will be lying, which is a big no-no for journalists. And I just got to say, if I were the person paying however much money to have this person represent me in a lawsuit against arguably the biggest media company in the United States, if not the world, I would be kind of troubled by yeah. this reaction. Yeah, that, that's not the kind of email that you want your, your lawyer <laughs> sending. I mean, sometimes we have to tell ourselves not to press send right. because I, I know I've had situations where I have not wanted to, uh, you know, deal with a situation or, or I've wanted to say something and I'm like, all right, no, 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 I'm not going to send that email. Yeah. And it sounds like he probably wants that one back. Um, but... Here's what Abby Grossberg's lawyer had to say on Tucker Carlson's exit from Fox News. We had rather preliminary and attenuated um, discussions uh, from last week over the weekend uh, to see whether we could resolve uh, our dispute with Fox. I do know that about 10 minutes after um, Fox essentially um, stiff-armed us and said uh, they didn't want to have any further discussions. Uh, we heard the news that Mr. Carlson was fired. And Mr. Carlson does play prominently in our lawsuit in the Southern District of New York, where we allege a very toxic and, frankly, disgusting work environment uh, that uh, included uh, all sorts of misogynistic and anti-Semitic comments. Yeah, I, so I saw in an interview with Abby Grossman where she detailed what she thought was anti-Semitic. 
And, you know, I, I was really intent on watching that part and seeing what it was. And it really didn't have the bite that I was expecting. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I'm not saying that it, that it wasn't. I don't think it's for me to gauge what's anti-Semitic and what's not. But the fact that I had to question it, um, I think that there are many people on a jury that, that would probably question it as well. So um, there, there better be some really strong evidence on those tapes right, that right. we're not hearing right now because the way she and her lawyers are kind of laying this thing out, it doesn't seem to have the same bite. Now, we know Fox News and any other corporation, they'd rather settle with you than go through a long process and a long legal fight. So uh, she may get you know, paid before she gets her day in court. Um, it may, it's not going to be like Dominion numbers, right. uh, but I think they probably want this to go away. And I think they're probably going to toss something her way to, to get this. Yeah. I felt the same the way. way about the sexism allegations because one of the prominent examples that's being used in the media reports on the lawsuit is that when she first started working at Tucker Carlson tonight out of the Manhattan office, she found that they had these pictures of Nancy Pelosi in like the bathing suit while she was in Italy up on the walls and it was kind of like a joke. Mm -hmm. And I feel like a lot of people on social media had kind of a similar reaction when yeah. that photo came out. Everybody was kind of poking fun and teasing. And so the idea that that was indicative of this like larger sexist workplace just didn't ring true to me. I didn't really buy well, that. Can I just say Nancy Pelosi looks fantastic Fantastic! I know, and that was kind <laughs> of like what people were talking about. They're yeah, like, "All like, right, this eighty-year-old woman 80 -year -old is like getting it done." <laughs> yo, let me tell you, if my wife looks like that at eighty, you're in great, right? You're in good shape. So we're yeah, good. we're I, doing all right. Yeah. The fact that that was mentioned in the lawsuit, I thought was um was a little strange, but. You know, I think we're we're going to obviously be hearing more about this story. I've been talking to other people behind the scenes, hopefully have some more information coming out. Um, but yeah, I mean, Fox is, of course, going to be probably looking to get this out of the spotlight as quickly as yeah. possible. I think they're they're thinking more about Smartmatic and dealing with that situation uh, than they are with this. And I think they probably want to throw some sort of number that, you know, and Fox, again, we know they are gigantic they have tons of money uh, they're gonna throw something at her and hope and you know hope that she accepts it and doesn't try to go to court yeah that does it for us Jason it was so nice sharing the desk with you today absolutely tune in next week Robbie will be back with guest host Jessica Burbank filling in for Brianna while she is on vacation have a great weekend and we'll see you soon on rising